This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Hello and welcome to another Dialogue podcast. I'm delighted today to have two of my longtime personal friends, Joe and Marilyn Bentley, we're going to talk about their recent service at the Brigham Young University Jerusalem Center. Marilyn will discuss the church's outreach program in Israel, and Joe will talk about LDS history in Israel. I think you'll find both presentations fascinating, and I suspect you'll learn many things you did not know about the church in Israel. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, chair of the Dialogue Board of Directors. Our podcast today was originally presented as a session of the Miller Eccles Study Group at our home in Orange County, California. If you enjoy this and other Dialogue podcasts, we hope you'll consider subscribing or contributing to Dialogue so we may continue to bring you the best in scholarship by and about Mormons. The next voice you'll hear with a brief introduction of the Bentleys will be my wife, Don Parrott Thurston. Joe has worked 35 years for Latham and Watkins in the real estate department and at the same time he has been very involved with church services as most of you know serving as bishop, stake president and regional representative and as uh, the director of Orange County Public Affairs and been most recently involved with helping to get the Mormon Studies program going at Claremont. He likes golf. He likes to eat. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he's fun. He's just an overall fun person. I can say that about him. Marilyn has been a good friend of mine. Marilyn graduated from Brigham Young University and did graduate work, work there in piano theory and piano performance also. And I've been, and as many of you probably have, been to some of her recitals. I've heard her put on a solo recital and also some two piano recitals where there have been as many as four people playing at these two pianos and it's just wonderful she's very talented she's also a talented artist and she's she and joe are the parents of five children and 15 15 maybe soon to be 16 grandchildren or something like that and so marilyn has served in the church's ward and stake relief society president and is currently the gospel doctrine teacher in her ward I'm going to turn the time now over to her. Thank you. Well, shalom. We are happy to be here and talk about one of our favorite places um, in the world. Jerusalem is certainly one of the most interesting cities that you might ever hope to visit. Um, it's uh, visually stunning with the bright uh, morning sun on the Dome of the Rock. The arches, cobbled streets, and uh, jumbled colorful marketplaces with a riot of colors and smells. Uh, people who look like they're in costume, but they aren't. That's how they look every day. Uh, the young women who feel they're obligatory two years in the Israel Defense Forces. And there are always old Arab men sitting around just enjoying the sunshine. The, the variety of religious uh, religious celebrations there is quite stunning. We have the uh, re observances of the Orthodox Jews and young people who are brought up in the religious traditions of their father, faithful Muslims who stop everything to respond to the call to prayer that sounds from the minarets across the city five times a day, 
bells from Christian churches, reminding us of the very small 2% of the population that are Arab Christians. All of this was an incredible experience. Here we worked and lived among these wonderful, diverse groups of people, each group defending its own traditions and history. We grew to love all of them as we had opportunities to learn about their cultures and the people who through the millennia have inhabited this holy land. One of the um, responsibilities we had was serving as directors of hosting and humanitarian services for the church and for BYU. And one benefit of that assignment was living in the BYU Jerusalem Center with its spectacular views looking across the Mount of Olives to the walled old city that sat at our feet. Israel is a highly favored uh, land in the eyes of the church. It gets special attention from our church leaders. Jim Curl, shown there on the right, is the uh, BYU vice president who has responsibility for everything that takes place at the Jerusalem Center. But everything passes through Elder Holland, who is the ultimate word, the last word on all things that happen in the Holy Land, church policies, school policies, and so forth. And the office staff that you see here is a combination of Israeli, Jews, and Arabs. They handle all of the day-to-day -day business of the center. That's not done through the church or through BYU. It's all turned over to these people, and they were enormously helpful uh, to me, especially with the humanitarian service projects, because they have lived there they, their whole lives. They know all of the groups of people there, and so they could recommend projects that would be worthy of receiving uh, church support. The Jerusalem Center is a spectacular building. Here we greeted over 20,000 visitors a year, and they came for concerts, for art exhibits, and for tours. 95% of them are Jewish, and they just uh, loved coming to the building. It's certainly one of the most beautiful places in all of Jerusalem. It was just a, um, an exceptional way that we could do missionary work very silently in the Holy Land because we weren't able to do proselyting at all. Joe will explain that later. As you approach the center, you note that its full name is a Jerus the BYU Jerusalem Center for Near Eastern Studies, but that's such a mouthful that everybody just refers to it as Mormon University. Even the sign out on the street says Mormon University. So if you get in a taxi and you want to get there, you just say, take me to Mormon University. Just forget the long name. But it's a beautiful uh, building, both outside and inside. Every Sunday night, visitors came for full house concerts, classical music that was uh, featured every every Sunday evening, and many of the performers were from the Israel Philharmonic, so these are just top-notch people who performed there. And local residents usually filled all 350 seats. Public tours were given at the center three days a week, and so we were in charge of those. They were able to see the upper two floors and then go outside onto the balcony that you see here. The terrace is 
is a wonderful place to capture views of the old city, and that's, I think, why most of them came. Uh, we had four historical models that you see on the upper right there, and so we were able to explain the um, very storied history of Jerusalem through the millennia. On one side of the building, there are biblical olive gardens, and so we would demonstrate how the ancient olive presses were used. The students use those every October to press olives and take home a little olive oil. Mm -hmm. Our other days were filled serving as directors of humanitarian services for all of Israel. The church recognizes the wonderful impact that humanitarian efforts can play in making the church known, and so they give particularly generous amounts to Israel. Um, we met with other humanitarian couples in the Middle East and found that our budget was far greater than theirs, but Israel is a very special place. So LDS Charities and BYU gave help impartially with no exclusion due to religious preferences. We partnered with about 40 Muslim, Christian, and Jewish charities, and we helped these wonderful, willing, humble people. Uh, they have with very limited resources, and we helped provide needed items in their communities, items such as that was, there were many, many disabled people in Israel, and so we helped them. We had mobility equipment, um, also for disabled, medical equipment for uh, several charities, hospitals and clinics, and dental equipment for clinics serving the poor. The challenges were mainly, but mainly financial and geographical. Most in Israel sought to peacefully coexist without the radical exclusion of others who were unlike them. The Jews and the Palestinians both have strong claims concerning the land, but we tried to assist the moderate majority and those who were willing to help people from whatever religious background. This map shows the West Bank area, the light blue up there, and you can see that Jerusalem is right up against the West Bank, and the center was in East Jerusalem, which is which adjoins the West Bank. The um, barrier wall is a controversial topic. It, you can see how high the wall is. In many places, it's a cement wall in the cities. Uh, it's a uh, razor wire fence out in rural areas, but it does surround the entire West Bank area, and so people can only cross from the West Bank into the rest of Israel through checkpoints, and access is very limited. So this has disrupted commerce, fam commerce, family life, and public services in the West Bank. It's also become a factor in the way the church is organized there, as members in the West Bank are unable to pass through the wall to get to Jerusalem to church services that are held in the Jerusalem center. So uh, just before we left, there was a group, Joel will tell you about that, organized in the West Bank in Bethlehem. Even the district name was changed from the Israel district to the Jerusalem district. Uh, there are political overtones to everything that is done there. So whether the wall becomes a permanent fixture, a boundary, or just a temporary solution remains to be determined, but it has stopped the bombing. Bethany is an example of 
uh, what life is like in the West Bank. You can see it on the upper right there. Buildings look like they're halfway completed or ready to be torn down. We could never really tell which. Uh, but both in Israel and the West Bank, many charities are headed by compassionate women who hold a hope of peace and a brighter, more prosperous future. Women willing to address the harsh economic realities of day-to-day -day living, and it is difficult. In Bethany, there's a 70% rate of unemployment, so it's, uh, life there is very challenging. Like other West Bank charities, Sharuk, shown here, provides training programs, cooking, clothing, design, and needlework to qualify women to find employment, uh, anything that they can do to help their families. We provided sewing machines and major kitchen appliances, enabling women to do <coughs> catering and qualify for employment in the community. We also assisted a few refugee camps with hygiene kits, this one in Jericho in the West Bank. Through the decades, tents have been turned into concrete cities, not always well maintained and funded mostly by foreign aid and the UN. We distributed hygiene kits to families and schools, but their basic needs are just absolutely endless and it's a very difficult thing to see. This was a Palestinian-run charity. This is an example of a, a Jewish charity, Naamat, which is a large international charity that helps to empower women with schools, daycare centers, and vocational training, especially for women in Israel. And they're often situated in areas where people have immigrated, mainly from Ethiopia and Russia, and who are very, very poor. Uh, we helped this preschool with new windows, doors, and a bathroom. And we were assisted by that uh, a Jewish couple shown on the bottom left, the Telmans, who were, became great friends of ours. The Princess Bosma Center is located within walking distance of our BYU Center. And it's a center for disabled children. It was a wonderful place to have our students volunteer and interact with people in the community. The facility houses physical therapy units and a school for about 750 Muslim children, though it is a Christian-run charity. Each semester, the students would go over and would paint large murals, colorful murals, on the um, walls of the dining area. This was a very fun activity for them. Uh, they would design it and, and execute the painting. Uh, several times each semester, our students helped their four preschool classes with English activities. One of the faculty wives helped me uh, plan a little curriculum for them. And we did games, songs, stories, and more, depending on the BYU students' special talents. Much of our humanitarian focus was on aid for educational and health purposes. Perhaps we were best known for these kits that you see shown here that were assembled on site rather than shipped over from Salt Lake the way they used to be. Uh, the materials were acquired entirely within Israel, which helped their economy, and then they were distributed all over the country. We assembled 37,000 school and hygiene kits a year, so it kept the students very busy on Friday afternoons. These were labeled as donations from LDS Charities and BYU, and it's a very effective way to spread awareness of the church throughout Israel and the West Bank. Now, just a different look at another part of Israel. Uh, the Negev is the southern half of Israel, and Bedouin life there is very, very challenging. 
one of our favorite charities there was Sidra. It's named after a tree in the Negev, which represents survival. It's a metaphor for survival and strength. This is another women's empowerment group. You can see from the two women on the bottom there that it is jointly run by a Jewish woman and an Arab woman. And it's wonderful to see these two groups working together. They're focused on changing women's roles in teaching income-generating activities to help them achieve higher potential. The Arab director and other Arab women in Sidra have chosen to remain unmarried, partly because many Bedouin men are polygamists. They can have up to four wives. With a 90% rate of illiteracy among adult Bedouin women in these unrecognized villages where they serve, they have very few learning and business opportunities. We provided school supplies and a teacher's salary for a literacy group of 20 women who meet several times a week to learn to read and write in Arabic. This is a big step for a Bedouin woman to take. At first, husbands were very reluctant, but then most became rather supportive. Sidra also has a weaving project where women dye, card, and spin all the yarn, and they're provided with floor looms, like you see on the upper left there, that they can have in their homes and work out of their homes that way. Uh, they make strips of cloth where they're, uh, and then brought to the center where they're made into pillows, purses, rugs, and wall hangings to be sold. And this gives the women a little additional income. Life is very, very difficult in the unrecognized Bedouin villages in the Negev. Seven settlements are recognized by the Israel government, but there are about 45 nomadic settlements not recognized by the government. 50% of the Bedouin population lives in these unrecognized settlements. And this means that they're not eligible for municipal services such as electricity, water, roads, health care, or trash pickup, things that we take for granted. We were particularly interested in their schools as education is a major concern. 77% of Bedouin girls do not graduate from high school, so they don't have a very bright future. Schools built by the Israel government there are poorly equipped. Uh, they lack basic needs like sufficient classrooms and textbooks. I took another volunteer from our center and uh, we drove a thousand school kits down to six Bedouin schools. The villages are not precisely marked on the map so I took the education director from Sidra with me to find where we were headed and you'll see there that she is not in the traditional burqa or hijab. She um, purposely dresses in western dress. You can see her in the bright yellow there because she wants the young girls uh, in the Bedouin villages to know that they have a choice whether to dress in the traditional way or in a Western way, and the same choice they have uh, with marriage. At every school, the administrators and the um, village leaders met us, and they were just so grateful that anybody paid any attention to them and understood their needs. Well, this is the old road to Jericho that was uh, used by the Lord in his parable of the Good Samaritan. In Israel, we saw some of today's Good Samaritans who are pouring in oil and wine to ease the plight of the needy, who are so numerous, both in Israel and the West Bank. It was an honor to join them in helping to alleviate the heavy burdens 
that so many bear, needing comfort and assistance. As the magnificent humanitarian Mother Teresa said, each of them is Jesus in disguise. And we would be well to remember her words. See that no one comes to you without leaving a better and a happier person. Well, I must tell you that uh, for me, at least, the person that just spoke is this, one of the main reasons that this was such a great experience for 18 months in Israel. What I want to talk about now is something that is very little known, even among active members of the church. And that is that we have had, as a church, a very long and a rich history there in the Holy Land, about 175 years long. Almost everyone here, I think, knows that it started with Orson Hyde, and that we have a BYU center today, and we must be doing some things right because things continue to grow. But let's try to fill in some gaps. First, let's talk about what is the Holy Land. As we define it, it's really that narrow strip on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean, some of the oldest inhabited parts of the world, and it's a land bridge for three continents, Africa, Asia, and uh, Europe. Uh, it's been, as a crossroads, fought over so many times, changed hands over 20 times, but through its entire existence, there has only been one flag that was flown for a sovereign nation. That was the nation of Israel. It's just possible that sometime, perhaps in our lifetime, there may be a second nation there. Of course, it's holy because of the one who was born and lived and ministered and died there. That's what makes it holy. But after his time, the uh, entire city and then the country of Israel was devastated by the Romans. There were revolts in both 70 AD, just two generations after Christ was dead, and then again uh, a century later. And this is the ninth of Av, which is a Hebrew uh, month, and it's the, their saddest time. That's the very day, as they believe, that the first temple, the Temple of Solomon, and the second temple, the Temple of, Hez of uh, uh, Herod, or Jesus, was destroyed. And many other calamities have occurred on that same date. Well, the Romans stayed long enough to uh, become Christians, and their base of operation was moved from Rome to uh, Constantinople, or the capital of Byzantium. Then in 638, the Muslims came to town. Remember that Muhammad died in 632. There were no Muslims, zero, uh, in the country at, uh, at that time. But in 638, uh, they did come and take possession of Jerusalem until they were dispossessed just before the year 1000 by the Crusaders. And then it went back and forth with a series of Muslim groups until finally the Ottoman Empire, based in Turkey, came for almost 500 years. So our story as a church really starts in the year 1836, when the country was basically abandoned, empty, practically. The Jews even had a saying that uh, this is perfect for us, a land without people for a people without a land. Uh, at that time, there were fewer than uh, just a half a million Arabs and only a handful of Jews. And everywhere for centuries, they prayed next year in Jerusalem. Well, that's where we come in. The... Uh, Kirtland Temple dedication occurred in 1836, that very year, and as part of the prayer, Joseph Smith said this, may the children of Judah begin to return to the lands that didst give to Abraham, their father. 
Now, Abraham had a large posterity, and that's another subject of, our, of another presentation that we've done, but we mostly think of the Jews, but the Muslims, the Arabs, I should say, are all children of Abraham. Uh, the very next week, Moses appeared with the keys of the gathering of Israel and gave those to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. But the real star of our show is this man, Orson Hyde, and, and we call him, uh, uh, somewhat uh, friendly fashion, the first Zionist. Uh, he joined the church in 1832 and uh, soon received a blessing from Joseph Smith that he would yet do a great work with the Jews. A short time after that, he had a vision of himself visiting, as the first Latter-day Saint ever, the seven great capitals in Europe, all seven of the great capitals, Berlin all the way around, Paris, London, and so on. <clears throat> and he saw himself ending that mission in Jerusalem, dedicating the Holy Land, as Joseph Smith had said in his prayer in Kirtland. So for almost three years, he took all by himself, with no money, uh, what is still called the longest and most dangerous mission in the history of the church. And I wish we had time to just talk about that. It's an amazing story. Uh, but he did find himself finally in Jerusalem on the 21st of October of 1841. Now the real father of Zionism, according to the Jews, is this man who was born 20 years after Orson Hyde was there, Theodore Herzl, who never went to Israel. Born and raised in Austria in Europe, but uh, started the movement that brought the Jews back in large numbers. And that's why he's such a controversial character. Now, these are the words of Orson Hyde. He said he awakened on his Sabbath, the Sunday, uh, before the sun came up, and left his lodging and went upon the Mount of Olives, where in solemn silence, with pen, ink, and paper, just as he had seen himself in that vision, he offered up his prayer to God. And these are some of the things that were included in that prayer. First, he didn't just single out the Jews. He mentioned all of Abraham's ch children, but he did specifically pray for the Jews, the scattered remnants of Judah, that that people would be constituted someday as a distinct nation and government, that they would be protected against all their enemies, that the land would become abundantly fruitful when possessed by its rightful heirs, flowing with plenty, and that Jerusalem would be raised as its capital and a temple would be built there to the Lord. Well, as I say, at that time there was just a handful of Jews, most of whom went there just to live out their last days and be buried uh, near the holy city. Today it's about equal. Six million Jews, six million Arabs, if you take the entirety of the Holy Land, Gaza and the West Bank included. Now, one thing that's not known is that eight other times apostles or members of the First Presidency went back to rededicate the Holy Land. Just 30 years after Orson Hyde, a member of the First Presidency, Joseph's nephew, George A. Smith, the grandfather of George Albert Smith, came with two other apostles, one of whom was Lorenzo Snow and became the president of the church. Uh, then uh, Anthony Lund, as a president of the, as in the First Presidency, came with another apostle and David O. McKay soon to follow. President McKay was on his worldwide tour that uh, Greg Prince talked about a couple years ago, a few years ago, when he was here with the Miller-Eccles group. Other European mission presidents, like uh, Francis Lyman, were uh, James E. Talmadge and John A. Whitsell. So we asked the question, why so many prayers? Wasn't Orson Hyde's good enough? Well, every time there was a new Mormon dispensation, a new movement, a new thrust of any kind, it would start with an apostolic prayer that would build on the one before. 
and I think all of them mentioned Orson Hyde's. So here's what some of those surges amounted to. The first missionary to come to what we call the Holy Land was this man, who later became the first principal of what is today BYU-Idaho, Jacob Sporey. Now he had a remarkable vision as he got down to Haifa and was working his way uh, closer to Jerusalem. I'm sorry, as he was sailing down to Haifa it was. He saw himself walking down the main street that looks today right up at the Baha'i Gardens. And the port is on one side and the Baha'i Gardens are on the other. And uh, he saw a man step out of a blacksmith shop, wipe his hands on his apron, and invite him in. The thing that's remarkable is that that man did that because he had had the same vision the night before, that he would meet a man who had a message for him and his family. And so the spirit at a certain point prompted him to step out, and that's what he did. His family became then the beginning of the first branch in the Holy Land, uh, the Haifa branch. George and his family later moved to the U.S., but their dying hope was to be buried back in Haifa at this cemetery, which was a German cemetery. Here also you'll see in the foreground a broken pillar and in the distance another broken pillar to memorialize these two men who were Mormon missionaries. On both pillars the inscription is representative of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That later became very important to enable legal recognition of the church in Israel some 80 years later. Uh, now these were not missionaries sent to proselyte Jews or Arabs. That has never been done. But they came for these German millennialists who were there just before the turn of the last century waiting for the Messiah. And they had some success. Enough that at least uh, for nearly 40 years, the church off and on investigated whether they should form a colony for the same reasons that we had colonies in Kirtland and Missouri and other places where uh, our people could be secure living together instead of scattered one by one. They could work together and support each other commercially and where they could help to fulfill a divine destiny. Now these were uh, the two, two of the men that, that did the most to try to explore this colonizing possibility which never did take fruition. There were different places considered, none of which worked out. Uh, Elder Lund, again, was one of those who dedicated the, the land and was in the first presidency. Uh, the one on the right was the first mission president over Turkey, uh, I'm sorry, uh, from Turkey, that was over uh, this part of the, uh, of the world. Actually, the, the first two missionaries that I mentioned were from the Swiss-Austrian mission. Then came the Turkish mission and the Armenian mission. This went on for some 50 years. And again, the only proselyting that was done was towards the Germans and later the Armenians uh, before and after the horrific genocide in uh, Turkey. And we heard quite a bit about that from the Armenians while we were there. All of this came to a screeching halt uh, in 1938, which, as you know, was the very beginning of the Second <coughs> World War. We weren't drawn into it until two years later. The... Uh, Independence of the state of Israel and the creation of that state uh, to them is, a, is, is the greatest miracle since the parting of the Red Sea. It really is. And uh, they were outnumbered 100 to 1. Five countries surrounding them were ready to uh, push them into the sea or back where they came from. And against all odds, they did become the 59th member of the United Nations. Our country was the first to recognize them under President Truman. And it's the first time that a nation or a civilization that had an empire and then disappeared came back again on the world stage. 
Just two years after their independence, actually they uh, were declared independence in 48 and became independent in 49. The very next year, this man became the Secretary of Agriculture. Now, agriculture in Israel became priority number one. First, we've got to feed our people, and they're coming in large numbers. And that was his job, was to help with uh, agricultural methods so that they could achieve that purpose. And so over uh, the entire eight years that he was in Eisenhower's cabinet, uh, he came and conferred regularly with the top people in Israel, including especially David Ben-Gurion. They had a very close relationship. Now his counterpart is this man that you might recognize who had the leading role in the uh, Six-Day War, 1967. Uh, He was a military man, it's true, but he was also a great organizer and he knew how to get things done, so they put him over agriculture. He and Benson met together on every occasion. Now we have the Six-Day War that we won't go through in detail, but uh, you can see what was the country of Israel in yellow before that war and what uh, it became afterwards. It quadrupled in size if you take all of Sinai and the West Bank, Gaza and the Golan Heights. That was in 67. The very next year, again, see how this all lines up. Uh, We started our first travel study program from BYU under these men, and this guy becomes the key figure for the next 20 years. David Galbraith went there to to study Hebrew at Hebrew University, got his his master's and his PhD there, and most people thought he was Jewish. He spoke flawless Hebrew. Then in 72, he was given charge of the uh, study program there at at Jerusalem, and they just moved from hotel to hotel to kibbutz to wherever they could go. And then it finally came together as more than a study program in 1972. This man became the first prophet in 2,000 years to visit the Holy Land. Joe, for the benefit of the tape, can you say who the man is? (laughs) Uh, Harold B. Lee. All right, sure, thanks. Thanks for the reminder. He was very, very impressed by what he saw and felt at the Garden Tomb. Many LDS scholars are uncertain whether that is the exact location. There are reasons yes and there are reasons no. But the fact is that all the church progress that has occurred since that time, almost all of it, began with his visit. Uh, He didn't come alone. He came with a man named Gordon B. Hinckley and some others. And while they were there, they... uh, paid a visit to the two chief rabbis in Jerusalem. And they were pretty suspicious about these Mormons that were known for their proselyting methods until they said this, we don't come in through the back door to any land, but only through the front door and when we're invited. And since they knew they would never be invited, their scowls turned to smiles. This was in September of that 72 visit. Now, the Orson Hyde Memorial Garden is another thing that many of you know about. Uh, that was a, the next signal event in 1979, just exactly seven years later. This was six acres that had been owned uh, historically by Catholic people in, from Italy. They dedicated all of it to the city of Jerusalem if they got permission to build a medical center on, on the backside. Uh, Mayor Teddy Kollek had a vision for the old city, and that was to take this wasteland that was the Kidron Valley that used to be beautiful and the New Testament talks about it, It was a trash pit. It was full of weeds and garbage. His vision was to take the the key parcel that's directly opposite the old city, beautify it, and then make that a model for everything else wrapping around the old city. And that's how it is today. The Jerusalem Garden (coughs) National Park is the uh, newest federal park. 
he came to uh, David Galbraith and said, now, if you can get a, a group of Mormons to raise the money to do that, and I think it'll take a million dollars to beautify that site and have enough left to start the sites on both sides, then we'll let you name it for Orson Hyde. He was very impressed with that story. So a contract was signed between the uh, Orson Hyde Foundation and Collex Jerusalem Foundation. And these two apostles, Howard Hunter and LeGrand Richards, were in charge of raising the money. And uh, it was named for Orson Hyde. And so it was that President Kimball in 1979 came with six apostles to do this dedication. That again would be the largest assemblage of apostles since the time of Christ. And here is Teddy Collick and Howard Hunter exchanging pleasantries and, and uh, mementos. On the right is Ezra Taft Benson. On the far left is President Kimball and their wives. So this is what it looks like today. As you look towards the old city, there it is, right in your face. Uh, the garden really has the most, most prominent and most direct site uh, at proximity to the old city. President Kimball referred back to Orson Hyde's dedication and how he had built his mound of stones, and he said, today we've built a much more permanent memorial to that same event. And then he talked about all the things in Orson Hyde's prayer that had already been fulfilled. The land was fruitful again, and we were told when we visited there as tourists in 1981 that if you see a tree anywhere, it was planted, uh, and probably in the last 10 years, and probably by a Jew. Many of these children of Abraham have returned, and new next year in Jerusalem is now a reality. It is a not only a modern refuge, but it is, again, the capital for the Jews, who are once more a distinct people and government, as he prayed. And all of this is part of our theology. In fact, our 10th article of faith starts off saying we believe in the literal gathering of Israel and the restoration of all 10 tribes. So the 70s was the decade, as N. Eldon Tander said, when uh, the church discovered the Holy Land, but the 80s was when the Holy Land would discover the church. While they were there in 79, they announced that there would be a search underway for a place to build a permanent BYU study center. It would be for students, it would be for faculty to come and enrich themselves with the great culture and language and history of the land. It's just a spectacular place. That's the view at our patio, just behind where we uh, lived as in our apartment. Uh, so it has these spectacular views. But it was supposed to be either part of that garden or a site for the Supreme Court. In any case, uh, when President Kimball said, I like it, Galbraith said, impossible. Can't be done. Eldon Tanner said uh, not to be deterred. I think uh, it's a good idea. All in favor, raise your hands. And he raised both hands. <laughs> Everybody but Galbraith raised their hands. <laughs> it was his job to go get it. <laughs> and that's another amazing story, how he was able to pull that off. In fact, our Jewish lawyer, who was not their lawyer at the time, but he said to me uh, just before we left, tell me, how did you Mormons get the very best sight on the Mount of Olives? <laughs> and I said, well, you're our lawyer. You tell me. And he said, well, it had to be two things. And I'm speaking as a Jew. Money and influence. <laughs> and we had both. Starting with Ezra Taft Benson. Lots of contacts at the highest level. Lots of influence. And uh, some good money that went with it. Now these are the two people that did the most uh, for us. The architect and the builder. They're still alive and they're much revered by us. They were both threatened, as we'll tell in our story, that if they uh, went through with this project, they would never do another thing as long as they lived in the state of Israel. 
They both went on to do many famous things, as you can see under Resnick's name there. Best of all, they were well-connected. Again, influence. City engineer, district attorney, and the attorney general of Israel uh, were very close to both of these men. But I call this man, Teddy Kollek, our indispensable man. Uh, he was mayor of Jerusalem for 30 years and took a lot of heat. But his vision was fulfilled and became, uh, he became uh, known as the greatest builder of Jerusalem since Herod the Great. So what is this center and, and where is it located? It's on land. Often they'll say, well, what was here before you guys came, before the Mormons came to town? The answer is nothing. It's a prime site. It's a great site. And it has a lot of history. The Romans camped there before they destroyed Jerusalem. The Babylonians did the same thing. And we were told as it went underway that if we found one single artifact or bone, a human bone, it would all stop and we would never get to, to complete the project. While they found all kinds of things on Hebrew University next door to us and on other sites, nothing was found on our site. It was taken during the Six-Day War and then the same year was annexed as East Jerusalem to the city. Our plans were prepared uh, both for the building and the landscaping in 1983. And then uh, it was rezoned for institutional or special use that same year. And the only objectors that showed up at the public hearings were our two nearest neighbors who didn't want us to block the view. So that's why it starts at the top of the hill and then it goes down the hill for eight levels instead of going up the hill. So the permits were issued. Again, the land is not owned by BYU. It's owned by Israel, by the Jerusalem. But a contract was signed, and we spent a vast fortune building this thing without owning anything. We didn't own the building. We didn't own the land. We didn't even have a lease. That's how important it was for the church to proceed with this through BYU. By the way, all the money came from the church, uh, except for some donations from uh, uh, individuals and BYU. But it was in 1984 that the real fun began. Oh, yeah. There is a segment of Jewish society that would like to exclude everybody that's not just like they are. That means all Arabs, and that means all secular Jews, and that means all moderate Jews. Only those who are truly committed to the ancient ways deserve to stay there. This is the group that was most concerned about our threat to their culture. They uh, rallied, they, they uh, picketed, they uh, threatened... They burned uh, things in uh, Galbraith's yard, threatened his children. It was a very ugly period of time. But what happened, amazingly, isn't this always true? <laughs> Overnight, this little group hiding in the Utah mountains becomes worldwide known as, as uh, on front page news, I should say. And it became a household word, and so it went for two more years. Now, on the church side of things, uh, this is the man from the First Presidency that oversaw everything, President Hinckley. Uh, one of his best friends later in the presidency, a fine lawyer, head of the Utah Bar Association at one time, is President Faust. And this lawyer, the only uh, lawyer to be president of the church and the only Californian to be president of the church, Howard Hunter. We love this man. <laughs> Through all of this period, 1980, the, the entire 80s, the president of BYU was Jeffrey Holland and, of course, David Galbraith. So that's our main top-level team this, as I say, provoked a true political crisis, not just for us, but for the country. Pressure was put politically by the ultra-Orthodox, who, by the way, were large enough by now that they formed a, a key part of the coalition. Anyone who wishes to govern in Israel must form a coalition. That means enough other parties to form 51%. And they were large enough that they could go either way. 
and it just so happened that they uh, managed to pull that off so that both parties had to form a coalition uh, with them as a part. I'll tell that in just a minute. Israeli law frowns on proselytizing of any kind, but it's pretty narrowly worded. It talks about overt financial inducements to cause others, anyone, to join a religion within their borders. We were asked to sign a much broader undertaking or guarantee against proselytizing. Well, that was easy for BYU to do because they'd never proselytized, not overtly. But the church also had to sign this, even though we had no direct interest in the property or the lease. So President Benson did that. A turning point came, though, when a lot of key American rabbis and political leaders uh, sent petitions to their uh, Knesset. And uh, while there was a threat to bring down the government, both the labor government under Shimon Peres, who, by the way, is still alive and probably the most revered man in Israel today, and uh, this man who's now deceased. Uh, so Likud and, and labor went back and forth, and there was this constant threat to bring down both of them if they didn't do what the uh, Orthodox were, were saying. Still, though, for four, three years, we soldiered on and, and finally had it completed. It was just a beautiful thing to see day and night. And then oh, uh, in, uh, about in the middle of the night, the students were awakened and said, now there's a threat that tomorrow there will be a, a, a barrier, a human barrier outside the center where no one can pass to get in. That'll be the last threat. So pack your things, we're leaving in one hour. So in the middle of the night, literally, they moved in and have been there ever since. It wasn't until the following year that we finally signed the lease, which was attached as an exhibit to that contract. It was more than a handshake, but it was only a contract until uh, President Hunter and President Holland were able to sign. Now, you can tell the Mormon guys by the coats and ties, can't you? <laughs> the others, that's how we dress most of the time, like the Jews and the Arabs. So, briefly, the lease says this. It goes for 49 years between BYU and the Israel Lands Authority, and it has, we have, a renewal option. A key clause is the use clause. We can only use it for uh, educational and cultural purposes, and a special committee was set up to monitor that and make sure that we behaved. The wording is that there can be no missionary activity within the borders of Israel. Israel claims all the West Bank and Gaza. So as long as that's uh, part of Israel, we, we are uh, forbidden from any missionary activity, which is called, d defined as organized efforts to persuade others to become a member. And this applies, it says, to church branches, departments, or institutions. Well, the church goes way beyond that. Every person that goes, every individual like us, every tourist that goes, is asked not to take books of Mormon, not to distribute literature, not to do anything that looks like proselytizing. We really want to renew that lease. So there are no missionaries in Israel, and there haven't been since 1938, or any of its occupied territories. And even the uh, humanitarian services that we rendered now go through BYU. We worked closely uh, in partnership with LDS Charities, but no longer. There can be no teaching of anyone who is not in the family of a Latter-day Saint without special approval. And no one can come to our church meetings if they're not Latter-day Saint without special approval. And there are guards at the front gate to check and make sure that everyone is how they should be. No one can be baptized there except for children of record. They have to go to Jordan, Turkey, Lebanon, or Cyprus. And no Jews or Muslims at all without uh, any special approval, especially the Muslims. That's, that's a matter of 
was of danger to them personally. Now, just a few brief words in conclusion about what the church is doing there today. This study center that we call the BYU Center for New East, Near Eastern Studies becomes a chapel. The auditorium is converted to a chapel one day a, a, a week, which is Saturday, the Sabbath. And as you sit there, uh, you have the best view in the world of where it happened, all of the events of the atonement. This is the Jerusalem branch. It's about 100 more or less, BYU students, faculty, families, and service couples like ourselves, and then another 50 that live outside the center in the city. In the Galilee, again, we just lease that property. In the Galilee, we own everything outright, land, building, the works. Elder Holland came in 2007 to uh, dedicate it. The zoning was already residential. It still is, so that was not an issue. As long as our BYU couple, volunteer couple, lives there, that's the residential part. And there are about 40 more or less, 40 permanent members that live there, all the way from Jordan across the the Jordan River across to the Mediterranean. In Tel Aviv, our largest branch is there with about 125 uh, saints that are mostly expatriates, but many that do live there permanently. Uh, We have that top floor in an office building with rights to build another floor on top of it. And while we were there, Elder Holland came to dedicate. And I'll just mention briefly some things that he said, very interesting things. He said the Arab Spring is a good thing. It may not look like it for now, and it may get worse before it gets better, but it is part of the Lord's plan to open up that part of the world. had to be done. It wasn't always pleasant or easy when the the Berlin Wall fell either. That his kingdom will continue to grow, will never be smaller there as a people, as Latter-day Saints, than we are now. And the reason, this is the reason why it's the most sacred soil on the face of the earth. And he said each step that's taken to dedicate and develop a site like this is another step towards achieving its final destiny. And he prayed that it would forever be an oasis of peace freed from the perils of something. Political winds and waves. waves. (laughs) Maury's computer is just a little different than mine. And this is the views out the top floor of that, uh, that office condo. There's still some tax issues involved. But I want to tell you about the Bethlehem group. This happened the last month that we were there. Uh, we had been meeting for a few years in the apartment of a, of a Latter-day Saint family. He was an elder that joined in London, a Catholic Arab. Uh, his wife was Catholic, and she was baptized just after we left. The church did its usual good job to go in and clean up the basement and beautify it, renovate it, and now we have a a nice lease on that facility. Well, let me just tell a little about what we did before I tell the rest of the story of what the church is doing. While Marilyn was there, she was the young women's president for the branch. (coughs) She had a great time. I had a challenging time to do what I had never done before, keep books and records, make the bank books balance, try to watch over the finances and membership issues uh, throughout the country. I'd never been a clerk of any kind. But they were very patient. The president was a, um, an amazing man, district president. He was the uh, marketing manager for General Motors back when that was fun to do. And, uh, <laughs> and he's standing between Elder uh, Rasband, who came just before we left, and his two counselors. Now let me just say finally what, the, what I think is happening in the Lord's hometowns. He really cares about the places where he was born, and raised. Here's the boot group in Bethlehem that was formed as an independent group. That means it no longer is part of the Jerusalem branch. They no longer had to get over the wall for meetings. They could now have their own group that reports directly to the district and includes all of the West Bank. 
from Ramallah all the way up through Hebron, Nablus, everywhere. In Nazareth, when everything seemed to be falling apart, this amazing family came into the church all at once. Born and raised in Nazareth, he was a very wealthy man, has his own business, could travel anywhere, and that's how he managed to somehow find himself in Salt Lake going to General Conference <laughs> with the man that he had met in Tel Aviv, who was a Latter-day Saint, uh, former mission president. His wife was a television and, uh, and radio personality, had her own show and recording, uh, uh, sings uh, beautifully in, in Arabic. And that's her daughter that was baptized at the same time, two little uh, kids that were twins. That family now has become the core of the church there, and he is a district counselor to this man who's with the FBI. And he, Fadul Mazawi, is the first Arab counselor in the history of the church in Israel. So amazing things really are happening there, and we were just blessed and grateful to be a part of it. As it now looks, what we have is really a, a, stu- a community of students and scholars, diplomats, and business people. But that BYU standard center stands out like the candle on a hill. And uh, it's not hid under a bushel, that's for sure. But all who go there get a chance to see both sides of the story. We didn't tell you about the faculty. Four come from BYU, and then the other four live there. Two are Arab, uh, Palestinians. The other two are Jewish. And they teach their version of history, Arabic and Hebrew. And so the students get a full, full exposure to, uh, to everything. But we very carefully and I think effectively steer a neutral course between our factions. We were told when we left that our job, Marilyn's and mine, was to try to make friends with everybody and maintain the friendship that had already been built uh, with the Palestinian community and the, uh, the Jewish Honoring this statement from President Hunter that we tried to live by, the church has an interest in all of Abraham's descendants. All are children of promise, children of our Heavenly Father, and as a church, we do not take sides. The Lord is just and merciful to everyone, and it's our job, it was our job, to try to emulate that as we went about our labors. We were blessed to do that, and I'm grateful that I could tell you about it. Thank you. Time for questions, Maureen? Yes, uh, and what an interesting presentation, both from Joe and Marilyn. Uh, I've talked to them before about this, but every time I hear them, I learn new things. We've got about 15 minutes for questions, so shoot away. The I saw in one of your last pictures of, of one of the church groups there, a Muslim woman in her... Oh, yes. How but did that come There is a second elder in Bethlehem. He's married to a Muslim. And she has a testimony that will bring tears to your eyes. She loves the Book of Mormon. She's training, raising her children to be Latter-day Saints. She may never be baptized. Possible someday, if they move away, that they could. Uh, They've actually written letters to immediate members of her family. But even so, there is a risk, a constant risk Mm -hmm. to her. Tremendous family pressure. Right. So that's her story. Clear in the back. I, I noticed that, you know, that there was, I think most of us knew that there was a prohibition on proselytizing in the Holy Land, or at least in Israel. And um, I was wondering about the building of the temple there. Is it forbidden to build a temple there as well, whether it's on Temple Mount or some other place? <laughs> well, it has to be on the Temple Mount. I have, that's another presentation that we do. The Temple Mount is 40 acres, and only a very small part of it is now developed. There is a Jewish uh, institute 
that's called the Temple Institute that's committed to building their temple. The Jews, the ultra-Orthodox, are firmly committed to taking it over, destroying whatever's there if it's necessary, and rebuilding it their way. Now, we know that won't happen, but what I try to encourage people is to see that they, maybe next to the Taj Mahal, this is the most beautiful Muslim building in the world, that beautiful Dome of the Rock. I don't see why anything has to happen to that. There's room all around it for that temple, and how the temple will ever get built, only the Lord knows. Joseph Smith said it would be before he comes, but uh, I'm not sure how that would work either. There's so much we don't know. Carolyn, you have a question? Yes, I was curious as to whether you learned much Hebrew or other languages, because especially when Marilyn talked about the literacy uh, programs and some of those things, I thought, my goodness, what language were they, they, they would come on tours and they said, you haven't learned Hebrew, because most of the people who came were spoke Hebrew. We didn't have time to learn Hebrew. Uh, in fact, the students themselves really didn't have much time for language. They had to, uh, they took a one-hour course in either Hebrew or Arabic. They had to choose one or the other, and it was pretty evenly split what their preferences were. But even the students learned, I mean, by the time you learn the alphabet, you're, you're we carried little cheat cards around <laughs> so that we would know how, how, to, how greet to greet people, people. and say goodbye <laughs> and nice to know you because when we would host at the concerts and yes. so forth we had to be able to greet people oh, yeah. uh, but most of that was in Hebrew but when they would say well why haven't you learned Hebrew we would say this is an American university why don't you learn English <laughs> <laughs> and most of them do Jews speak pretty good English. I thought it's similar, the restrictions there are very similar to what it is in China. Well, the, the church is very careful there also mm-hmm. to go in the yes. front door and not slip in the side or back door. There's a lot at stake in China, and Marilyn talked about how there's attention paid to the Holy Land. Same is true for China. Another question. Or the wine stock. Um, what is the, what's the Sabbath day like? The Sabbath day, that's very interesting. One of the really big hurdles that, uh, that David Galbraith had to clear was to get permission to meet on, the Sabbath, on Saturday as our Sabbath day and to worship the day the Jews worship. Well, it's not just out of honor and deference to them, respecting their culture and practice. Fact is, Sunday is a work day. It's our Monday. So anyone who's involved with the embassy or the, with the business or, or relationships in the country, if they were to, or if, if, if they worked for a, a Jewish group, they would have to take a vacation day every week. The brethren struggled with that a long time, and then they finally agreed that it would make sense to uh, to move our Sabbath worship on onto the Saturday. And so we treat Saturday exactly as we do Sunday. And Sundays are clean up and work day. I run and get groceries and uh, shopping and doing things. The Muslims, uh, their holy days are Friday and Sunday, so they have Saturday off of school. It's a little different, but we found with all the expatriates and the people who were employed in Israel, most of them, virtually all of them, worked for uh, Israeli organizations or the government. So, so in Bethlehem, which is Arab country, we, we worship on Sunday. Sunday. It's it's not a holy day. It's their it's their off day. Friday is their group prayer and right. holy day. And so in Jordan, uh, the church meets on Friday. Friday. 
But in Bethlehem, we meet on Sunday. In <laughs> Jerusalem, you meet on Saturday. Saturday. Right. If you can keep you can track go of that. Church all week. Yeah. <laughs> you could go. Well, we had people who did that. These these students would go to Hebrew University. <laughs> this is interesting. Many of our Mormon American students would come to Hebrew University to learn Arabic. And they would come to church on Saturday, and then we would enlist them to go over to Bethlehem where everything is in Arabic. And they would teach primary and other things, give talks and, uh, and conduct meetings, all in Arabic. Uh, those students at Hebrew University speaking Arabic were, were very effective. Janet? Did you do your own grocery shopping and cook your own food, and was it difficult to know how to negotiate that? <laughs> Reading love labels was tricky. I never knew if I was getting sour cream or yogurt, you know, until I kind of learned enough of the Hebrew. But yes, we did our own cooking. We could eat with the students in the cafeteria, but you know, 18 months of it, and it all looks the same. You know, every night you have the fish, meat, and chicken, and you know, you get it. so we just would cook our own. We shopped at a market in up in by Hebrew University. I did some grocery shopping up there, but there was a small Arab market that was really more fun and fresher fruit and everything down the hill, down in the Kidron Valley, in a very um, crummy-looking <laughs> neighborhood, all of East Jerusalem. You can tell immediately when you go from East Jerusalem to West Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. But, but the food was good. It was close. It was easy to shop. <laughs> and so we had cooking facilities in our apartment. Yeah. I've been told that Howard W. Hunter believed that uh, the founding of Israel was not the fulfillment of a prophecy. Have you heard that? Yeah. I'm not sure that I've seen that. I know President Benson felt differently. Uh, he felt that his position in the Eisenhower cabinet was the Lord's will to help that little struggling country become much more as it is now. There are tensions there. It's not the end, for sure. Uh, the Jews have oppressed the Arabs. There's absolutely no question about that. But then the Arabs have tried to blow up the Jews, and so it's gone both ways. But as far as President Hunter making that statement, I, I'm not surprised in the sense that he is—he was of all the brethren the most careful when they went to dedicate an Orson Hyde Garden in Jerusalem with the city of Jerusalem for the Jews, that we would also strike a fair balance with the Palestinians. So what has happened ever since that is that uh, scholarships every year are extended to Palestinian students mm-hmm. to BYU. Because the center and the Orson Hyde Garden, that's all part of East Jerusalem. Those are all Arab areas where, where we're sitting. So they have to be very careful to support the Palestinians. Some of those Arab students, like our District Relief Society president, did join the church. Uh, they were not targeted, you might say, or seriously proselytized, but many of them would come and like it and feel good and, and want to join. And so that's how we get the permanent residents joining the church elsewhere and, and moving back. Uh, those two elders in Bethlehem is a good example. Joe, my question dovetails with what you're talking about. It seems like it's easy for us. We feel like, in, both as Mormons but also evangelicals, that if we're going to be pro-Israeli, we sort of ought to be anti-Palestinian. Mm. But it sounds like by being on the ground, you've developed a much, much more mm-hmm. sophisticated way to look at it. Can you comment some more on that, you know, attitude uh, that we're reaching out to all of Abraham's children and and uh, 
one that of the kind of neutrality that it sounds like. Really yeah, really one of the things out. that really helped us was having the director Jewish, the associate director Arab. He was an Arab Christian, but it helped having the two of them. So, like with humanitarian work, there was a careful balance, um, dollar-wise, in expenditures in who we supported. And really, one of the most exciting things that I saw was with the humanitarian groups where they had joint directors of, you know, and, and these works that, the charities that worked to bring young people together under the same roof. They, they do not associate, they do not affiliate at all. There, there's no exchange, really. One of them that I went to was with high school students, and I sat in on a meeting. These children had never, the Palestinians had ne never been in a Jewish home, the Jews had never been in an Arab home until this project on photography that brought them together and committed them to participate for a year. But it's that type of thing that if you can get these groups together at all, it's very exciting. Is there any other church uh, office uh, office set up in the world that, is, that has got uh, non-members as, as their staff people? <laughs> I don't think so. If you're a Latter-day Saint, you cannot work there. You can't be hired. You have to be outside. And, and it's really become a model of how Zion should be. We were told by Jim Curl when we were trained for this, uh, that this is a, a perfect Zion model where when they're interviewed and hired, Jews and Palestinians are asked whether they can get along equally well with each other. And they have to be able to speak both languages. So this is the, the maintenance crew, the kitchen crew, the security, security. staff. The they all speak men. Arabic. They all speak Hebrew and English. And English. At, yes, those who work at the BYU Center. The locals who were employed. And really, we didn't see a moment of friction among any of the staff or any of our people. Now, frankly, when the students come back, Brother Curl was a little concerned about this. He said they're, they're for the most part, pro-Palestinian because they see that awful wall. It's just like the Berlin Wall, 30, 40 feet high, concrete, barriers, barbed wire, and what it does uh, to, the, uh, to the commerce and relationships on the West Bank. And they really do feel for those people. On the other hand, they have to be reminded that it, that's the very reason that they can be there. That wall has created a sense of security, which makes it possible for our students to go back. This there were six years when they yeah. could not be there at all. I have a question about Dead Sea Scrolls. Isn't it true that the Dead Sea Scrolls stayed in Jerusalem? Yes. Uh, and is there any... Is there still work going on to translate and yes. There is. I think it's mostly done. It's taken, it was in the 40s, and now we're, what, 70, 80 years later? Finally, I think most of it is done, but the originals are there. Most of them are in the Rockefeller Museum, which was close to our center, but they're on display. Uh, copies are on display in the, uh, what's the museum called in Jerusalem? Not, don't, not it's, it's right outside the Israel Museum. BYU has had a major role in digitizing and helping with the translation. Joe, uh, Gordon. Dr. Perry from BYU is one of the lead translators of the yeah, uh -huh. Right. I understand. Uh, uh, one thing I was really curious about, it was fascinating to hear that we're outspending everybody else with over one billion Catholics in the world. I mean, what's going on over there other than what we're doing? And are, are we perceived as being Christian? We are not 
outspending the Catholics. Okay. <laughs> Believe me. Okay. We worked with Catholic charities uh, over there. Caritas was a big Catholic group over there, so we would partner with them in things. So the church, but compared to other Middle Eastern countries, Israel was given a bigger budget. It's just okay. Is there is there more Eastern Orthodox Christians in Jerusalem than Catholics, or is there yes, Catholics? there are yes. more Orthodox and then the Catholics and then the Protestants are way down. Yeah. And are the Catholics you get the Coptics? Uh, they're you know the Armenians. I don't know about politically, but the Catholic patriarch, uh, the Jerusalem patriarch, is a, is a big deal. He's, uh, in fact, I was told that there's efforts to bring the Pope to Jerusalem to live there. I mean, to make that the center for, for Catholicism. But, but only 2% of the country is Christian of any sort, so it's a very, very small percentage. Do they see us as Christians? Well, yes, I, they do, I think, because they would ask often, what's the difference in your church and other Christian religions? Yeah. The, the Jews tended to see us that way, and so did the yeah. Palestinians. One more question. Here in the States, at least I think it's mostly in the States, we've had that little undercurrent of people who try to uh, do temple work for Holocaust oh, survivors, yes. you know, that's oh, yes. and, and the Jewish community here, you know, has... Uh, and, you know, our leaders have worked to try to mend fences about all of that. Mm -hmm. Has any of that had any negative repercussion over there? Very little. There, Good. In the whole time that I conducted tours, uh, I did three or four of those every day, uh, maybe two or three times questions would come up about what the, what is that all about? Mostly curiosity. We've heard mm -hmm. something. What does that mean? We would explain it, and they'd seem to be satisfied. Well, this has really been interesting, as I yeah. say, and uh, we certainly appreciate joining us. You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit dialoguejournal.com. Thank you.